0: good morning there we go starting to worry there so i um i i know that if you're tracking with us we're moving very slowly through the book of revelation um we're we're intentionally moving very slowly right now but some of you may be wondering if in fact jesus might return before we finish book of Revelation. So we're going through the seven churches very slowly because everything that happens there is expanded and expounded upon in the rest of the book. But after we get through the seven churches at the end of chapter three, we will pick up the, the pace considerably, I promise you. Um, I think I think we'll be done before Jesus returns. So I've been watching the um, over the last few years the Apple TV series Foundation. It's a A science fiction um, series based on the novels of uh, Isaac Asimov. It takes place 10,000 years in the future. And I see in this series, in this this world that they've created, a lot of parallels to uh, Revelation. The Galactic Empire Foundation, for example, is ruthless and powerful and violent The empire is unbending and unchanging and does not want to let go of its power, which is the nature of empire. Harry Seldon, one of the protagonists in the story, says, change is frightening, especially to those in power. Change is frightening, especially to those in power. The the showrunner of the series is a man named, uh, named David S. Goyer. He likes to play, by his own admission, likes to play with faith in these stories and empire and the interaction there. there there is no christianity in foundation but there are several other types of faith that always seem to be testing the rigidity and the, and the power and the violence of the empire and that is the kind of thing we're dealing with in uh first century rome and the roman empire that is the kind of thing that jesus and and john in the book of revelation is dealing with in these messages to the seven churches in chapters two and three faith, and empire. These seven prophetic words to the churches are all about the impact that empire has on us as followers of Jesus, and nearly all of it speaks to us of the temptation to compromise our faith, to go along, to get along. There's a lot of things happening, uh, but all of it kind of centers down on our temptation to compromise. David Brooks, a columnist with the New York Times, once said of The Workplace, quote, Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. Scholars Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett take Brooks' words and they apply them to Babylon, which is code in the book of Revelation for Rome, Saying this, I say, "quote These false teachers chose to live comfortably in Babylon as ideal citizens, socially respectable leaders, and as people who belonged. But before too long, they really did belong to Babylon because Babylon had formed them into good Romans. In other words, Babylon had discipled them, but not in the way of Jesus and not in the way of the cross. And the same can be said of us today, and we." like they can't always tell what our culture, our own empire, is shaping us into. It is the water we swim in. An empire is always with us. An empire is always trying to disciple us. This morning, we encounter the fourth of these seven prophetic messages to the churches who are the addressees of the letter that we call Revelation. Jesus encourages them in their faith and challenges them and calls them out where they have been seduced by empire. And each prophetic word, as we've said for the last few weeks, is made up of five basic components. They are sometimes in a slightly different order or mixed up a little bit, and they are sometimes split in different parts, but the components are all there uh, for the most part. Once again, these components are Christ, commendation, condemnation, challenge, and then the conqueror's promise. The first one being Christ. So, in verse 18, Jesus speaks to this component. He speaks to John in the vision, and he identifies himself with the first of them. Chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Then let's couple that with verse 23, where we get a little more of Jesus' identity, of this Christ component. Right in the middle of the verse... Uh, verse 23, he says this, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus says something about himself here that in in verse 1 that he doesn't say anywhere else in the book of Revelation. He identifies himself as the Son of God. He also identifies himself as the one, as a sort of a judge, the one who knows the hearts and minds of the people and will repay us for our misdeeds. Now, in ancient Israel, <coughs> the Son of God label had royal connotations before it had the connotations that we think of. In 2 in Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that the heir to his throne would be a son to God and that God would be his father. This was understood, generally speaking, uh, of all kings <coughs> that God appointed and, of course, it was understood in a special way to refer to the coming Messiah. The New Testament, however, takes this title and runs with it as they came to understand um, that Jesus shared God's divine nature through his virgin birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that the title Son of God took on a whole new meaning. And both of these ideas, Jesus as royalty and Jesus as divine, both of these ideas challenged the imperial cult uh, that worshipped emperors as divine going back to uh, Julius Caesar in 42 B.C. On top of that, Julius Caesar's son Augustus was known as the son of God, because Julius Caesar was a god. The cult of Augustus was based in the city of Pergamum, we heard about that last week, only 38 miles or so away. So this idea of Augustus as son of God would have likely been very popular in Thyatira as well. The same is true of several other emperors and it was true of Domitian, the the son of the deified emperor Vespasian. Domitian was the emperor at the time Revelation was written and he also was known as the son of God. You're seeing a theme here. By so clearly identifying himself as the son of God, Jesus offers a severe and dangerous critique of the imperial cult and its emperors. You emperors are not the son of God, I am. After identifying identifying himself as the Son of God and the one having all authority, Jesus moves on to the second component in the message in verse 19, commendation. Revelation 2, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus celebrates their faithfulness and praises them for growing in their good deeds. Love, love of God, love of one another, faith in God, faithfulness to God, service to others, perseverance in the face of hostility, and false teaching. Furthermore, their good works have increased. They are to be commended. Now this gracious word of commendation butters them up for what comes next, the condemnation. When it comes to the villains in the book of Revelation, so far we have met the Nicolaitans and we've met someone nicknamed Balaam, who was named after the non-Israelite prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers. Chapters 22 to 24. And in this word of condemnation, we meet the third member of this sort of unholy trinity, Jezebel. Verses 20 and 21. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now when you and I hear the name Jezebel, we may recognize it as sort of a slur used in popular culture forever to describe immoral women who deceive others to get whatever they want. But the Jezebel Jesus is referring to was the wife of King Ahab in first and second kings. She was famous for misleading um, the Israelites into the worship of Baal, a false God. And for persecuting the prophets, most notably Elijah. In an old Peanuts comic, Linus gives us the rest of the story. The little girl says, Today my name is Jezebel. Linus says, Jezebel was the evil wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings, it says that her servants threw her out of the window and she landed on her head. Today my name is Susan. Both the Jezebel of the Old Testament and the Jezebel of Revelation 2 were false teachers who led God's people into idolatry and sexual immorality. In this context, in the context of Revelation, sexual immorality was a metaphor for idolatry. In the same way that the people of Israel were said to be unfaithful to God, to have cheated on God, by several of the Old Testament prophets, most notably Hosea chapter 1. There, God tells the prophet to take a promiscuous woman as his wife so that she and he become an object lesson to the community of how Israel, how the people of God, have been unfaithful to God. Dicey stuff. Then comes the word of challenge for this congregation and for Jezebel. Jesus says in verses 22 and the first part of 23, "...so I will cast her on a bed of suffering." This is all PG-13. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. That's intense. PG-13 at the least. The use of the word bed is full of meaning. As you can imagine, immorality and adultery were committed in bed, so let the punishment fit the crime. Your suffering, your punishment will take place in bed as well. Now, on top of that, when the Romans ate food, sacrificed to idols at these big luscious banquets, they reclined on a couch to do so. And the word translated as couch there is the same word used for bed and in bed of suffering. This bed of suffering or to be cast on a bed of suffering could refer to a severe illness that might lead to death. Jesus' statement that he will strike her children dead refers to Jezebel's followers, not her children. And that phrase can be translated as strike them with a plague, which metaphorically (laughs) could simply refer to the misery that comes from uh, our lives when we live uh, a life opposed to God. We live a life in rebellion and sin against God. And once again, this is intense. Any way you look at it, whether you look at it metaphorically or literally, it's intense. And the image we get here of Jesus is quite honestly, it just doesn't click that well with the Jesus of, of kindness and unconditional love and gentleness, does it? I can assure you, I can assure you that Jesus and his mercy will more and more show themselves as the book of Revelation unfolds. But for now, we kind of just have to sit in this tension and sit in this discomfort and sit in this intensity. In verse 24, however, Jesus downshifts from fourth gear to third and the intensity lessens just a bit. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Here we come back to a brief word of commendation. There is a remnant of followers in the church, in Thyatira, followers of Jesus, maybe only a few of them who have not given in to Jezebel's teaching. That phrase, Satan's so-called deep secrets, may be uh, a mockery of something that Jezebel has said. Maybe she's tried to sell them on something called the deep secrets of God, but Jesus wants to know, no, 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 that's not what they are. They're not God's secrets, they're Satan's secrets. This is an example of Jesus not beating around the bush. It's sort of like back earlier in chapter 2 when we refer to a synagogue of Satan. He does it to make a point. The challenge for Jezebel and all her followers is to repent, to change their minds, to turn and go in a new direction. The the Greek word, uh, as we've said many times before, for repent in the New Testament is to change your mind. The Old Testament word, the Hebrew word, is to turn. To change your mind to turn in a new direction. The followers need to repent. And the challenge for those of us, for those who have not given in to her false teaching, their challenge is to hold on to what they already have until Jesus comes back. And if you think about it, these are the choices that are there for all of us at any given time. We either need to repent of the things we've gotten wrong or we need to hold on to the things we've gotten right and sometimes both of those things on the same day or at the same time. I have described Jesus' words as intense. Pastor Kurt described uh, his passage with the same word, intense, last week, and these words are intense. This challenge to stay the course. To trust God in the context of empire and to do so even to the point of death, if necessary, is intense. The call to repentance and the warning of judgment if they do not repent, also very intense. These things are intense because they exhort us to resist empire. And empire is dangerous. Empire is not just a geography or a conquered people. Empire is a name, we might say. A spirit of the age. Empire traffics in power, in violence, and fear. And empire is always with us. Always opposing us. Always seducing us, even today. As Matchett and McKnight say in their book, The Revelation for the Rest of Us, Babylon is timeless. Timeless. Babylon is timeless. It might be Hollywood. It might be Washington, D.C. It might be something else entirely, but Babylon is timeless. Living as dissident disciples of Jesus in the context of empire can be intense, yes. But so are the things that Jesus promises us if we conquer. So are the rewards we're going to get if we are victorious. Those two are intense what we are calling the conqueror's promise. In verses 26 to 28, Jesus speaks of this promise, this reward that awaits us if we remain faithful and do not give in to false teaching and the pressures of empire. Verses 26 to 28. <clears throat> to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will, quote, rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. We are called to be victorious over empire and over the temptation to compromise our faith. And to be victorious, more literally to conquer, is not, it does not mean to overcome by violence or force. For these are the ways of empire, not Jesus. Rather, we conquer in the same way Jesus conquered, by being a faithful witness, even to the point of death, if necessary. Once more, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, to conquer is not to defeat our enemies or the enemies of the gospel by force or by violence or by military might. It is to be a faithful witness to Jesus, even to the point of death. We're going to see this more clearly, again, as we get deeper into the book of Revelation. When Jesus says that he will give those who conquer authority over the nations, and that they will rule the nations with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, he's quoting there from the book of Psalms, chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, which some ancient uh, Jewish sources understood to be about the Messiah. So Jesus takes words that were originally applied to him and applies them to his followers, those who remain faithful, even to the point of death. He shares his authority as Messiah, as the Son of God, with us, his followers. And then to push the idea a bit further, he adds, I will also give you the morning star. The book of Numbers, The same prophet we've already met, Balaam, was charged by Balak, king of Moab, to curse God's people. And Balaam tried to do so three times because God instructed him to do otherwise. He tried to to, to curse. All he could do was bless. And then a chapter or so later in Numbers 24, 17, Balaam prophesies this way. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, Balaam was a false prophet. He enticed the people of God to go after, to follow, to worship false idols. But on on this one, he was dead on. I mean, even a broken clock's right twice a day, right? This one, he he was right. The star he speaks of was an image of God's promised ruler, the Messiah. And likewise, other Jewish sources understood the phrase morning star as referring to the Messiah who would come and conquer all of Israel's enemies. And again, like I said, everything we find here in these seven churches, these words of the church, churches, will be expanded and expounded upon as we go through the book of Revelation. Later, Revelation 22, verse 16, right near the end of the book, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. In case we weren't sure, Jesus has identified himself as a bright morning morning star the morning star is the first star to be seen in the morning if you were up early uh, enough this morning you might have seen it this is the time of year you can see it best it is the planet venus it's not a star at all and it's very bright you can see it even after the sun rises for a bit add to this the fact that a comet was said to have appeared when julius caesar died and a comet in those days was understood as a star a wandering star, even today we sometimes call them shooting stars, they're not stars. And so we have this divinity linked to star, they understood that as a sign that he was divine. So once again we have Jesus claiming not only that he was the Jewish Messiah, but that he, not Caesar, not any other emperor, was the true morning star, the true divine one, the true son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, sits at the right hand of God. He has all authority over nations. He reigns over all creation. And the conqueror's promise tells us that he will give us his authority. We will reign with him. He will give us his authority and we will reign with him. Revelation 22.5 makes this even clearer. After describing the new Jerusalem and the restoration of the Garden of Eden, and the healing of the nations, John says that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no more light. They, the servants of God, will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. They, we, the servants of God and the nations who have been healed, will reign with God in Christ forever and ever and if you think john's words are a little fantastic consider the words of the apostle paul in second timothy chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 speaking of christ if we died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him we will reign with christ forever that too is rather intense The promises are even more intense than the calls to repentance in Revelation. The good news is more intense than the bad news. We'll give it a listen. But what's it going to look like? As I am fond of saying, I have no idea. When I come across passages like this that speak of the future that I can't possibly imagine, I say, I have no idea what it is. Practically speaking, I have no idea. But I do know that whatever it is, it will be good, and it will be beautiful and it will be true but i don't know what it's going to look like megan our director of worship and music and i meet as i've told you every week to kind of talk about the themes in the sermon and she goes off and prays and comes back with ideas for songs that would tie in and she and the other worship leaders do a fantastic job sometimes however that task is really difficult This week is one of those weeks. No matter what you do, you just can't find the song that ties in as perfectly as you would like. Because it turns out, while there are plenty of songs about Christ reigning forever and ever, there aren't any that she or I could find that talk about, sing about us reigning with Christ forever and ever. If you know one, come to us afterwards. So I was originally going to suggest that we do something that turns out to be a little naughty I was going to suggest that we change the lyrics. Make it inform me, well, that's illegal. You can't change the lyrics. <laughs> we're, we're streaming so everybody would know. If nobody would know, I might do it. But you can't change the lyrics. I said, well, what if, <laughs> what if we show the lyrics as they are, but I tell the congregation they can change the words. You and the worship team can sing them properly, and they can change the words. But I changed my mind. I mean, you can do it if you want to. You're just changing you to we and ours or yours to ours. It's not that hard. So if you want to do that, do that. But I'm not telling you to do that. <laughs> YouTube goes after you on these things, I'm telling you. So I changed my mind. Here's why. I realized that to focus on what it means to reign with Christ puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. The syllable, the word we should focus on, is the word with. With. With him, with him, with him. It is God and the Lamb upon the throne who reign forever over everything. To reign with him, then, is to experience an intimacy with him and an elevated status in creation that we simply have never experienced or known and cannot imagine. To reign with Christ is to experience an intimacy with Christ and an elevated status over creation that we have never known and simply cannot imagine. It is to be fully in Christ the New Testament we like to say we like to talk about Christ living in us you can find that three maybe four places but everywhere else we are in Christ we are in Christ to reign with God in Christ is to reestablish the life the first humans had in the garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 where humankind ruled with God over all of creation and fellowship with God in the the garden in the cool of the day. And one of the most powerful and glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can begin to tap into that coming reality even now. Here's how you do it. It's actually very simple. When you sense that God has spoken to you in some way, Maybe it's to take up a spiritual practice that you haven't done before. Maybe it's, to, it's conviction of sin that you need to repent of. Maybe someone is in need and you need to be loving toward your neighbor. Whatever it is, when you sense God is telling you to do something, do it. Do it. Take the step. Repent of the sin. Love your neighbor. Get up a few minutes earlier in the morning to spend time in prayer and reflection. On scripture in silence just do the next thing you know to do and then repeat when another thing comes to you another step another choice another conviction repeat the process do the next thing again do the next thing again and again and again and over time, that is transformative. Or maybe for you, the next thing is taking the first step in coming to faith in Christ. And that's a very simple step. Not easy. shouldn't be easy when you consider it. But it's a simple step. It is a giving of our lives over to God in prayer. It is confessing our need of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And it is choosing to submit our lives to Christ, to follow jesus not perfectly not even consistently but to take the first step and then the next and then the next and then the next and if that describes you i invite you to come to me during the closing song or after the service find someone you know who knows christ talk with them about it go online to our communication card even if you've already filled it out fill it out a second time and tell us You want to know more about what it means to know and follow Jesus? There's just a box to check there. See, that's how we grow. That's how we begin. And we can even now begin to taste and experience the future intimacy that God has for us in Christ. And then one day, we are promised one day that we, along with Jesus, will endure and we will conquer and the Garden of Eden and our broken fellowship with God will be completely healed and restored, and that we will reign with him forever. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, We thank you once again for our brother John, the author of Revelation. We thank you for these difficult words that through your Son you have delivered to them and to us and to everybody in between. And God, it is so easy to not see where we have compromised but simply to point to others where they have compromised. Would you help us to allow your Spirit to speak to us, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, And more than anything, God, to begin to get a taste to do the next thing and to begin to get a taste of that intimacy, that growing intimacy, that elevated status that you have in store for all of us. Help us, God, to go out this day, whether we are just coming to faith or not sure we're there or whether we have been a part of the body of Christ for decades. Help us to go out this day, this week, and to live our lives as those who know that this is true. One day, we will reign with you forever.